So every once in a while when I'm reading contemporary poetry, or really even poetry from the last couple hundred years, and I feel like I've had my head in the modern era, especially modern English poetry, I like to do what I call a Sappho check. Sappho, who we've mentioned on this podcast before, is often spoken of as the inventor of lyric poetry. That is poetry that is short, that is from usually a first-person perspective, even though the speaker is not always the same as the poet. And poetry that kind of develops into what we consider to be both song lyrics and kind of the poetry that we expect to find in, say, an anthology of romantic verse or an anthology of devotional verse. Poetry that's relatively short, and when I say relatively short, I mean anywhere from a page or two down to even just a couple lines, from the haiku to the ballad to the sonnet. All of this generally fits into the category of lyric poetry. Sappho was considered by the ancients and is still considered to this day to be one of the first great, perhaps the first great, lyric poet. She lived on the Greek islands to the east of the Greek mainland, almost really to modern-day Turkey. She lived on the island of Lesbos, and though there were other lyric poets writing in Greek around the time that she was writing, this is a uh, late 700s into the early 600s BC, she really stood out partly because of how well she wrote about love. She has love poems that are some of the first really in recorded history to articulate the feeling of being in love in a way that sort of describes both the joy and the agony of love. So we can say she kind of invented love poetry and gave us the first mature lyric poetry that we have, at least in European history. So when I say I like to do a Sappho check, this is what I mean. I like to look back at Sappho and kind of get grounded in, okay, are the lyric poems that I'm enjoying, that I'm talking about, that I'm thinking about, that maybe I'm even imitating as a writer, how connected are they still to the ancient past, to those things that Sappho mastered? And it often helps reorient me when it comes to questions of what is timeless in verse. Now, I want to look at a Sappho poem today. Obviously, if I'm starting talking about Sappho, you might think, oh, he's going to read a Sappho poem, and you'd be right. But I want to read a poem that often isn't talked about in Sappho studies, partly because it's a relatively new poem by Sappho. Now, what could I possibly mean by a relatively new poem by Sappho if Sappho wrote, well, almost 3,000 years ago? Well, as anyone who's done any study in Sappho knows, we don't have most of what Sappho wrote. We only have fragments. Now, the fragments we have of her poetry amount to a couple hundred fragments, but most of those are just a couple lines, maybe a stanza. We only have a handful of poems between half a dozen and a dozen that we could really think of as complete poems. And so every once in a while, in the last few hundred years, a new fragment or even whole Sappho poem will be discovered. And whenever these are discovered, all of a sudden there are new critical debates about is this a whole poem? Is this half of a poem? If a line ends halfway through the manuscript and we don't have the rest of the line, we debate about what the rest of the line may have said. Was there a line that came before this poem? How many stanzas come after? These questions both uh, baffle and plague and really in the end excite critics because it's some fun thing to argue about, about a poet whose fame is everlasting. 
Sappho will never go away from scholarship as long as we remember that there was an ancient Greek world, as long as we remember that there was ancient Greek poetry, we'll read and talk about Sappho. So when a new poem is discovered, it's pretty exciting. In 1922, a fragment of a poem was discovered by Sappho, and in it she referenced uh, the myth, myth of Tithonus, or Tithonus. And uh, in the myth of Tithonus, or Tithonus, I'll probably say it both ways. We're not exactly sure how to pronounce ancient Greek, so your guess is as good as mine. In this myth, a goddess, the goddess of the dawn in particular, takes Tithonus, who is a mortal man, to live with her in the realm of the gods. Of course, we know how this is going to go. Dawn is immortal. Tithonus is mortal. So he ages and gets older and older while Dawn stays the same age. And, you know, there's mythic questions of the curse of mortality, but or perhaps the mercy of mortality. Do you really want to live as an immortal god, or is it better to be able to die? Questions like this are what's brought up with and why the myth of Tithonus is still interesting, I think, throughout history. Well, anyway, in 1922, a fragment of a poem by Sappho was discovered, and it mentions the Tithonus myth. People found it interesting, but there weren't a lot of lines from it, and it was sort of relegated to the, well, it would be cool if we had that whole poem, but we don't and we never will pile for Sappho's poetry, of which there are many. But then in 2004, a new fragment was discovered, which seemed to be the whole first few stanzas of the Tithonus poem. And when it was matched up with the 1922 poem, we find what appears to be a complete or nearly complete poem by Sappho. I want to read this poem to you and reflect on it a little bit. This poem I translated from the Greek with the help of the many other translators who have gone before consulting their translations, uh, consulting the Greek, poring over uh, classical Greek dictionaries, pulling my hair out over the meter. But I think I've got it to a place where you both get a feel for what the lines in Greek mean, but also what the meter would have sounded like. And I'm going to try and read it so that you can feel the rhythm. The rhythm is very odd, and I want to talk about it a little bit. But also pay attention where the Tithonus myth shows up in this poem. Here it is. If you want a name for this, this is usually referred to as Fragment 58b or Poem 58b of Sappho. Live life for the muse, girls, who is violet, girt, and lovely. Live earnest for fond songs from the sweet voice of the lyre, children. For I am become old, what was once delicate skin is wrinkled, and age has blanched hair that was once black. It is white forever. My spirit is weighed down with my cares, knees refuse their flexing. Yes, knees that were once nimble and swift as fawns in their skips and dancings. But what can I do? rail and complain? No, for that's what life is, for none can escape age and the slow loss of their youth, not one man. Just think of Tithonus who Dawn loved, the stories tell us, for though she absconded him far, even to utmost earth's end, that man who was once beautiful, once young, was found by time and grew gray as the fair goddess his wife watched, bereft, and deathless. One of the things that both delighted and also maybe puzzled a little bit scholars who started studying this poem 
is that it's not very similar to a lot of Sappho's other poetry. Sappho's other poetry is often about young lovers or sort of the life of youth, the vagaries of youth, of love and jealousy and, you know, missing the beloved who's gone on a journey. This, though, it seems to be spoken from the perspective of someone who is old, who is now sort of dispensing wisdom for the young. Live life for the muse girls, who is violet, girt, and lovely. Live earnest for fond songs from the sweet voice of the lyre children. That is the first stanza. And it's two lines. It's two lines of what we would call a variation of Ionic verse, or this is sometimes referred to as Anacreontic verse, after the contemporary of Sappho, Anacreon. The rhythm is an odd rhythm, and you can sort of vary the rhythm a little bit how you want to, but the basic structure of these lines is you have several feet that play with this pattern of two stressed syllables and then two unstressed syllables. Live life for the muse girls. So stress, stressed, unstressed, unstressed, stress, stressed, unstressed, unstressed. And by the end of the line, you end up with alternating stressed and unstressed syllables. So there's live life for the muse girls, who is violet, girt, and lovely. That girt and lovely, you all of a sudden have these just stressed, unstressed, stressed, unstressed. Of course, in Greek, the stress also goes along with the fact that this is a long vowel sound, and the unstressed goes with the fact that there's a short vowel sound. We don't quite have that apparent difference in long and short vowel sounds in English, and so we approximate it with stress and unstress. But you get a sense of the rhythm of it, uh, this ionic rhythm. There are six stanzas in this poem, and there are couplet stanzas. So there's just two lines per stanza. So the first one is this exhortation to the youths, especially girls, to live for the muse and live for the songs and the instruments that make the songs. There's been a debate in Sappho studies really for now thousands of years as to how Sappho was related to the kind of artistic and educational culture of her island, Lesbos. Now, Lesbos, it's thought, has been a center of art and music and culture in Greece since at least the lifetime of Sappho, if not before. But we've never been able to tell whether Sappho was officially like a teacher of music and poetry, or maybe she was just sort of known for being one of the accomplished and interesting musicians of her town. And so there was an informal sort of uh, role that she had as a proponent of the arts. It's unclear. Some have seen Sappho as sort of a demanding school marm, you know, telling the little girls to be quiet and learn their lessons. That doesn't quite seem like Sappho to me. Sappho seems like if she was an educator, she was much more winsome than that. But regardless of her official role in her community or in an institution, here we have a strong exhortation to the youth, in particular the female youth, the girls, to live the life of lyric poetry, to play the lyre. After all, that's where the word lyric comes from. It's poetry that's to be written and sung alongside lyre music. But it's connected to the mythological significance of the lyre. The lyric poet is one who's inspired by the muse. There are nine muses. There's a lot of mythical importance to the muse for the poet, especially the lyric poet. The epic poet as well. We think of Homer, uh, who lived not really too long before Sappho, a hundred years, give or take, who is also calling on the muse at the beginning of his epic. 
The second stanza takes us into, though, a more personal reflection, and this is something that Sappho really does invent, I think, for us, or maybe perfect if others had invented it before her. This speaking from the eye, from the perspective of the poet, or at least pretending to speak from a personal perspective, and kind of reflecting on one's own self-experience and self-identity. For I am become old, what was once delicate skin is wrinkled, and age has blanched hair that was once black. It is white forever. So the speaker is saying, look, live life for the muse, live for music and poetry, because you're going to get old. And I'm old, she says. What was once delicate skin is wrinkled. My hair, it was dark. It's now all it's now all white. The Greek has this idea, not just it's now white, but it's it's white forevermore. It will go on being white. I cannot have youth again. My spirit is weighed down with my cares. Knees refuse their flexing. Yes, knees that were once nimble as swift fawns in their skips and dancings. Uh, this is nice. I think we'd expect if someone was going to talk about being old, what are they going to say? I'm wrinkly. My hair's changed colors. I can't move like I did. But in describing that she can't move like she did, she gives this beautiful image of dancing. Knees that were once nimble as swift fawns in their skips and dancings. We have all of a sudden this sort of reverie about youth, and the word fawn there is important. It's not just deer, it's young deer. But what can I do? Rail and complain? No, for that's what life is. For none can escape age and the slow loss of their youth, not one man. This is interesting. It's now a reflecting on her reflection. Am I going to keep complaining? I'm not going to keep complaining. That's what life is. Not one man can escape. This is both a celebration of the beauty of youth, but also kind of gather ye rosebuds while ye may type poem. We associate that with sort of a 19th century, you know, Tennysonian, you know, seize the day, make your lives extraordinary. But it goes all the way back to Sappho. When they're doing that in the 19th century, writers in America or England who are doing this, you know, live for youth. Um, they're just riffing on Sappho. It seems like we could end there, that none can escape age and the slow loss of their youth, not one man. If the poem ended there, or if that's where the fragment ended, I think we would say, yeah, so okay, interesting meditation, some nice images of youth, some kind of ruining the day. But no, Sappho needs to do a connection to mythology. And this is something that the ancients do really well. This is something that almost becomes annoying in some later lyric poets like Pindar. Pindar will sometimes say, I will now sing the song of the great, you know, Olympic victor, Achilleos. Achilleos is just like this other guy in a myth. And then three pages later, you're still hearing the myth. And you're like, what happened to Achilleos? What happened to the, to the Olympic victor? But it's something the Greeks love doing. They want to connect the everyday quotidian details that they're describing to the myths because they're learning from myths about life. What we learn from, from myths and what we learn from life for someone like Sappho or someone like Pindar are much more connected than for us today. After all, their myths aren't our myths. Uh, perhaps we do this in particular ways, but their stories they learn from are the myths of antiquity. So the myth, of course, is the Tithonus myth. Just think of Tithonus, who Don loved. The stories tell us, for though she absconded him far, 
even to utmost Earth's end. I love that. She took him away. She didn't just take him to her house. She took him as far as you can take someone from their home to utmost Earth's end. After all, that's where Dawn lives, isn't it? Sort of the divine edge beyond the world where she rises. Even to utmost Earth's end, that man who was once beautiful, once young, was found by time and grew gray as the fair goddess, his wife, watched, bereft and deathless. That last phrase is fantastic. I love it. It was so fun uh, translating it. But I want to go back to this. He was found by time. There, there's this idea that, you know, if Dawn has been personified, why not time? Dawn absconded to Thonis, and maybe she thought time couldn't find him, but time found him. You see time almost in this sort of mythic sphere, it kept searching for Tithonus, trying to find the mortal uh, so that, that it can work its natural course on him, and it does find him. And he grows gray, but the fair goddess stays fair. She is bereft and deathless. And I think this is one of the big mysteries of ancient Greek poetry, and I think it's something we can learn from. They, they didn't shy away from, from just telling it like it was in their eyes. It's sad to grow old. It's sad to not be able to dance. It's sad to have devoted your life to a youthful thing like music and poetry, but to realize you can't really even participate in it like you used to because your fingers can't pluck the lyre or your knees can't dance the proper dances. But then there's this looking at the divine and seeing if you're divine, that doesn't make it better because you'll end up loving someone who, if they're mortal, dies before your eyes. To be deathless is also to be bereft of all beautiful things that die. Is it better to be mortal or immortal? She doesn't really answer the question. Both seem to be deeply melancholy. After all, Dawn got to have the experience of loving Tithonus, but she lost him. Sappho is good to look back to, to check and see, okay, are we writing with a care for craft? Because she is. Are we honest about our own frustrations? Because Sappho is. Are we even reflecting on our frustrations and reminding ourselves, hey, don't complain about those things? Sappho is. Is she connecting it to ultimate mythic truth and difficult mysteries like death and mortality? Sappho is. Sappho is doing those things. Are we doing them? When you write poetry, when you read poetry, are you seeing these ancient perfections that we see in the old poets? If not, let us learn from them. And let us seek out poetry that imitates these things, that learns from these things. Because contemporary poetry, it shouldn't be ancient Greek poetry. But we learn from masters like Sappho what can be done in short poems. I read an article recently that was bemoaning the state of lyric poetry. It was saying that lyric poems today, especially free verse lyric, it's just random observations that are put into lines and maybe there's a nice turn of phrase or a metaphor that sounds fun. But really, it's just random everyday observations by poets and we shouldn't really care about them. It's a little narcissistic for both the poet to write them and, and the reader to read them. And in this article, they, they called for turning to other forms of poetry, formal poetry, uh, narrative poetry, poetry that doesn't focus on the self. I think Sappho shows us that you can talk from your own experience or from a very personal perspective, even if it's an invented speaker, 
And that can be powerful, but that mastering the formal acting your own self-disclosure to myth, to the great mysteries of theology and philosophy are ways to ground your own personal observations and experience in things that are more eternal, that are more universal. Lyric poetry should not be rejected, I would argue, as simply narcissistic or not really relevant. It can be, and it is in the, its best forms, connected to those things that apply to all of us. Thanks for doing the Sappho check with me. Thanks for looking at poetry that continues to endure. It's fun to be able to be humble in the face of something that has so outlived us. But also it's important to realize that I think Sappho knew that people are more important than poetry. And poetry at its best can both trouble and inspire us as humans to, to live well, to live life for what's worth living for. Now, what is worth living for? Well, the poets still write of it. The philosophers still debate it. You can consider it. And hopefully Sappho can help us think through it. This has been the Poetry Corner podcast. I'm Dr. Timothy Bartell. If you have any questions or comments, you can email us at poetrycorner at stconstantine.org. Thank you.